Hello, everyone. Welcome to All Things Episcopal, where we talk about anything and everything related to the Episcopal Church. This podcast was designed with younger folks in mind and as a space to learn more about the Christian faith with the Episcopal lens. So in traditionally Episcopalian greeting fashion, the Lord be with you. Hey, friends, welcome back for part two of It's the Great Eucharist, Charlie Brown. I am here with my co-host, Father David. Uh, Father Colin could not join us today, but we wish him well um, in whatever ministry he is doing today. And we're going to continue the conversation today, starting with a question about um, what are, or sorry, what is grace and how is that related to the Eucharist? So, Father David, I am going to let you answer that question. So we start with, and that comes for those who you might remember from last week, I'm, I'm basically using the section on the Holy Eucharist that's in the outline of the faith or commonly called the catechism in the back of the prayer book. And so I kind of went through a, a lot of it last week, but and so we're still continuing. So one of the questions that's in the catechism is what are the benefits that we receive in the Lord's Supper? So, and the answer, the benefits we receive are the forgiveness of our sins, the strengthening of our union with Christ and one another, and the foretaste of the heavenly banquet, which is our nourishment in eternal life. Now, where I guess where I want to go with that is remembering that the sacraments, and again, I'm kind of coming back to the catechism, uh, the sacraments are outward and visible signs of inward and spiritual grace given by Christ as sure and certain means by which we receive that grace. So it's important to remember, if nothing else about the Eucharist, the Eucharist is a means of grace. And I don't know, you know, uh, Claire, I mean, when you hear, when you've heard the word grace, what is that? What, what, do, you, what do you, what do you think of grace? What, what has that meant to you in the past? I think it's, an unmerited favor, um, an extension of um, unwarranted grace, or sorry, unwarranted forgiveness, of mercy, of kindness. Um, it is unearned. It is undeserved. Um, and it's out of an outpouring of love, um, an unconditional love from God. Amen. I mean, that's exactly... You know, that's the that's in, in our outline of the faith. When the question is asked, "What is grace?" the answer is, um, "Grace is God's favor towards us, a specific favor." Right? Grace is not just a feeling that God has; it's an actual favor, a favor towards us, unearned and undeserved, and that is rooted in the the understanding that. While God created us in God's image, and we are, by their, for a definition, there's a goodness in every human being, we are also, because of our sin, we're, we're stuck. And we are stuck in our distrust of God and our distrust of each other unless God helps us. And grace is God's favor towards us, unearned and undeserved. By grace, God forgives our sins, enlightens our minds stirs our hearts, and strengthens our wills. And so the sacraments are the means by which we receive that grace. Now, you might, in baptism, and we talked about baptism 
last season. And the emphasis in baptism, the way as we understand it in the Episcopal Church, is toward basically new birth. That baptism is the means by which we are redeemed from what some theologians have called original sin. Sometimes I prefer to use the term inevitable sin, because if you say original sin, that has the connotations, oh, this is something that gets passed down through sex, you know. Well, it's that that's it's not like that, but there is something in the human condition that just makes it inevitable that too often we're not going to trust God. We're not going to trust our creator. And when and then when we don't trust our creator, we don't trust each other. And that's really what sin is. Sin is alienation from our creator and from each other. And so it is. it can only be by grace that God, and only God can overcome it, that God is able to overcome that alienation by God's grace. And so baptism is often that that's where we are. Um, we are, we are, we have water poured over us, which is representative of, 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 in effect, being, well, well, drowned with Christ. We are, in effect, drowned with Christ in his death, but we rise from it in his resurrection. So baptism is the new birth out of grace. Eucharist is what sustains that baptismal life of grace, baptism. And so if you notice in our catechism, it does say by grace, God can forgive our sins. You know, so the Eucharist itself is a means of forgiveness. Now, there are other means of forgiveness, and we're going to actually come to that a little later uh, in this episode. So it just, just a reminder, grace is a real thing. It is absolutely real. And, and without it, we have really no hope in us. And the, and, and the Eucharist is, is a means of that grace of nourishing our souls, strengthening our wills and forgiving our sins. It's so, one of my favorite things <laughs> every Sunday, like when I get to go up to the rail, um, knowing that I am reconciled back to my creator, mm-hmm. to my neighbor. And there's something that happens when you receive the elements that is mm-hmm. transcendent and it's palpable um, when when you're fully present to un- like even attempt to understand the amount of love that the creator has for you in those two elements alone. It's kind of mind blowing. It is. Now I can't remember if I, how much I, I know I talked a little bit about how I came to the Episcopal church last season, but it sort of as a personal thing, you know, I was, so uh, I was raised Southern Baptist. Now I always feel like I have to say it was the 1970s really before the fundamentalist takeover of the Southern Baptist convention. It was a different, it it was, it was in many respects, a a very different Southern Baptist church that was raised in that said um, in those days, I was baptized at the the age of nine, but then just a few years later, you started to hear, I was starting to hear in, in my Baptist church, this thing about needing to be quote born again. And he had to be born again to be saved. And I was going, wait a minute. I thought I was saved when I was baptized. And, you know, that can be, that's called salvation anxiety. And that can be a very real thing (laughs) Um, when you, when you grow up that way. And 
And that was something that I struggled with. Well, how do I know I'm saved? And to be honest, for me, when I first discovered the Episcopal Church and discovered the Holy Eucharist, I mean, to use that old hymn, that that's my blessed, the, the Eucharist is my blessed assurance. Um, you know, Jesus, just let me eat him and drink him. If that's not salvation, if that's not grace, I don't know what is. <laughs> so with that personal testimony behind us, um, so the next question in the outline of faith, and uh, this is, you know, in case you're wondering, there are requirements. You know, it's not a blank check. There are requirements. And the next question is, what is required of us when we come to the Eucharist? That reminds me, you said that there was a question that was that one of our young adults uh, wanted to have answered. I know that Episcopalians practice an open table when it comes to the Eucharist. How open is that table and who does it actually include? All right. So, right, that's it kind of dovetails, right? What's required of us? Well, some who can take communion? Well, the answer in the in the catechism question of what is required of us when we come to the Eucharist is this. It is required that we should examine our lives, repent of our sins, and be in love and charity with all people. Now, it's not explicitly stated here, but it's certainly implied um, in the requirement of repentance and being in love and charity is baptism. Um, baptism in what is called historically the Trinitarian formula, that is, baptism in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So, first of all, baptism is required, and, I, and I'm going to touch on what has been a subject of some debate in different parts of the Episcopal Church. I know there, there are some who in good conscience believe that just as Jesus offered hospitality, and that meant often having meals, even with sinners, that the church should not put up, a re- that the baptism requirement is a potential hindrance for some people to come to faith in Jesus if that's made, in effect, a requirement, a hoop that you have to to jump through. Um, now, there that's a debate I'm, I'm willing to have, and, and, and I'm even willing to, to hear those arguments. I will say, first of all, the canons of the, the canons, and that's basically the laws of the Episcopal Church, do explicitly require baptism in order to receive communion. And as, you know, and, and as someone who is a priest in the church, and one of the basic vows I took was that I would conform to the doctrine, discipline, and worship of the Episcopal Church, and that is a rule that I have to uphold. Now, I, I do want to make it very clear, I don't check people's baptism cards at the uh, communion rail. But, um, a- again, this is all about, if you think about it, in baptism, we are sharing in Christ crucifixion in the eucharist we are in a sense representing <laughs> jesus's re crucifixion he said this is my body this is my blood and he was doing it just before he was going to be crucified so it i think in order to fully understand what's happening in the eucharist i think does require an understanding of what it means that yes jesus died for our sake and therefore, I do think we have to be, we, we have to kind of have an understanding of what it is that we need to repent of. 
what what needs to change in our lives? What do we need to examine in our lives? So baptism is the first and the basic requirement. However, unlike a lot of other churches, our communion table is more open than most because we also say that once you've been baptized in the Trinitarian formula, regardless of what denomination that was in, all may participate with us in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, because in the you know for those who've been at a baptism, the opening uh, salutation is different from what it is in in, in the Holy Eucharist. Uh, in in Holy Baptism, we all say there is one body and one spirit. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. And so, um, so our belief is that we you know. As long as you are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, I mean, we may have our different denominations have different ways of expressing the faith. We might even have some disagreements. But I think in the Episcopal Church, we still believe that ultimately that baptism unites us more than divides us. And by virtue of that baptism, there's more that unites us than what divides us. And so everyone is, in fact, um, welcome to receive. Again, so long as they examine their lives and repent of our sins and be in love and charity uh, with all people, which actually segues into another question that one of our young adults wanted to ask. In the Episcopal Church, what is the benefit of partaking in the sacrament of a private confession versus the sacrament of general confession we have at every liturgy? So in the so in the church, if you if you if you've been in the Episcopal Church after the prayers of the people. Uh, you'll the priest will say, "Let us confess our sins against God and our neighbor." So, and then we all say a general, what's called a general uh, confession, um, in which we 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 confess that we have not loved God or loved our neighbors as ourselves in thought, word, and deed, and that is a general confession. And then after that confession, you will see, usually the priest will stand up and make the sign of the cross over the congregation and basically say, God forgives you of your sins. And that's called absolution. Now, that that's that's different from what the in the Roman Catholic Church, that's a difference between us. Uh, in the Episcopal Church, our assumption is that that confession is is broad enough that you can fill in the specific ways in which you have not loved God or loved your neighbors yourself, the specific thoughts, words, and deeds by which you have failed uh, to do that. And so we trust that you've done that. And But we do have the same understanding as the Roman Catholics, that the priest and, and the bishop, that they are authorized to declare God's pardon. Not to say, may God forgive you, but declare God does forgive you. And that's why priests make the sign of the cross. That's when they're basically acting again in a in a sacramental way to dispense God's grace through the forgiveness of sins. Now, um, there is in the prayer book what's called the rite of reconciliation, and that is basically an individual confession. Now, in the Roman Catholic Church, that's individual confession is the only way to receive absolution. Well, there's a there's a classic saying when it comes in the Episcopal Church when it comes to individual confession, um, all may, some should, none must. 
So, you know, sometimes I think people and I and I and I have and I've seen this in my ministry as a priest. Sometimes you need to come in a confidential place, and it is confidential. It's understood the the seal of confidentiality is over confession in this case. That some people really need to say explicitly what they have done, and they need to say it before. And this, there's a wonderful saying in Rite One that there's an in the old Rite One service, there's a exhortation to communion that talks about opening your heart to a discreet and understanding priest. And uh, I know the way we do it at St. John's, we don't have confessional booths, but um, if someone wants, you know, if they make an appointment or sometimes during seasons like Advent and Lent that are penitential, um, I will be vested. And I'll be sitting on one side of the communion rail, and a parishioner will come in and kneel, and we will go through that rite of reconciliation, and they will say specifically what they've done, and then I will give some words of comfort, and then I basically declare again that God pardons and forgives. So my advice to anyone who's wondering about confession is, first of all, be comforted, you Definitely make an examination of yourselves before you come to Eucharist. You should be able to say something. You should know in your heart some specific way that you haven't loved God, some specific way that you haven't loved your neighbor, and some specific thought, word, and deed during the week. Um, as long as you have that in your heart, then when I stand up, make the sign of the cross, you are forgiven. That means God has forgiven and forgotten what you have done. Um, but sometimes if you ever feel that need for a more specific, by all means, you know, call me and I and I am ready to do that, as is any priest. So um, so that's what comes to confession. Now, now we're going to come to a part that uh, <laughs> what I like to call episco etiquette. Um, and this is a question that I think you had from one from a young adult, right? Mm hmm. What are some of the practices that I should be doing during the Eucharist? Is there something that I'm supposed to say? Am I supposed to cross myself? Am I supposed to put my hands a certain way? So, like I said, in, in the the first of all, there's a, there's just a basic question: Well, what what are you supposed? Yeah, what actions is one supposed to take? Like what what which side does the salad fork go on? And, and I know that sounds kind of trivial, but but actually. I've had more than one person ask, well, wait a minute, when am I supposed to make a sign of the cross? Okay. And then more seriously, okay, wait a minute. I was at some church and everybody went down on their knees at the Eucharistic prayer. I was at another church and everybody kept standing. Wait, 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 what's going on here? <laughs> and so, and you know, we are, it's, it, it is a meal and there's an etiquette involved and, and, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to know you know, what, what are the customs and what is expected of us? Now, this uh, this leads to something else I call Episco Trivia. So in the prayer book, you'll often find some small print directions that are, that are in italics. Now, in the first English books of common prayer, those directions were printed in red ink. And if you think about it, a ruby, right, is red. Well, ruby comes from Latin rube for red. And so 
these directions in the English prayer book came to be known as rubrics. Now, in most editions of the prayer book today, those uh, directions are not printed in uh, red ink, but they are definitely smaller print. They're smaller size than the the spoken parts, and they're in italics. So they are they they're it's basically the same thing. They are the rubrics that say what what's supposed to happen and what the people are supposed to do. And that, to be honest, it's probably it, some of that are rubrics, and frankly, some of it does come down to custom because. Uh, unlike earlier versions of the prayer book, the 79 Book of Common Prayer actually uh, has is kind of flexible, which sometimes people go, I'm not sure I want all that flexibility. I would like to be told, what am I supposed to do? Okay. But, and that comes from, I, I think, an assumption that the people who came up with the prayer book made that standing or kneeling are equally reverent postures to assume before God. And it's not one or the other. And so there are places in the Eucharist where, again, because it's optional, the custom, because the truth is what's going to happen is you're going to kind of do what the majority of people are doing <laughs> at whatever parish you're at. Some people are going to stand, some people are going to kneel. So for instance, um, and here's the basic rule, and, and I'll try to explain it. So fundamentally, the people stand to praise or affirm God. The people sit to hear God. And then the people will stand or kneel to petition God. So if I break that down a little bit, and if you go through the Eucharist, and I'm kind of looking at right to beginning on page 355, um, it says the people stand, and they stand when we say, Blessed be God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We stand to praise God in the in the glory in the in the in the ancient church hymn, Glory to God in the highest. So at that point, it's very clear we're standing to praise God. Then we come to the collect of the day, sort of the main prayer of the day, and there's no specific the the assumption is that you you're you're still standing. But this is a point, right? A collect is where you are petitioning God. And so I know is the custom at St. John's. When I say the Lord be with you and they all go also with you, people go down. <laughs> and yeah. they now there may be other churches where the custom is the people remain standing. And that's that's the custom at um, the church I worship at which is St. Thomas the Apostle in Overland Park, Kansas. And it's half and half at um, Grace and Holy Trinity Cathedral, which is in the Diocese of West Missouri. Um, so it's kind of, to to Father David's point, finding that flexibility um, within that corporate piety that we talked about a little bit earlier in season one, um, personal and corporate piety. It, it can be a little tricky, particularly... I know the Grace and Holy Trinity, that's a large church. And so it's it's harder to find that corporate because there's so many people. If half the people are standing, half are kneeling, there's not, you know, in a smaller parish, there may be, if you see everybody else kneeling, then you're probably going to get the signal. You should probably kneel, right? Or if everybody's standing, you're okay, I need to stand. But um, so, but but in any case, right, we we have stood to praise God. We've stood or we've knelt to petition God. 
And then you go through the lessons and we're sitting because, you know, I, I actually, before I was ordained, I did work in the political world in Washington. And one of my political mentors did have a saying, um, the mind can only absorb so much as the seat can endure. So, you know, if, if people, if, if people need to hear the scripture readings and hear the sermon, they kind of need to be sitting. And that makes sense. So people, the people sit to hear God speaking through the word and through uh, the sermon. Now, there is another in, in between there. You sit to hear the Old Testament and the New Testament reading. But when it comes to the gospel, you know, what do we say when we're we say the, you know, the priest says or the deacon, the holy gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And the people say, glory to you, Lord Christ. And then after they say praise to you. So guess what? We've been praising God again. So we stand to praise Jesus. Then after the sermon, we're affirming our faith in God and the Nicene Creed. And so we all stand. And that's what the directions say. Then the prayers of the people, that's where it kind of just, it, the assumption is if you were standing at the creed, you could remain standing for the prayers. But again, in a lot of parishes, people are going to go down. <laughs> and I will always say, Stand or kneel as able, right? Because a lot of people at this point, they can't stand for an extended period and they can't just be on their knees the whole time. I, I, when I was a lay person, I would do what was called the, I called it the Anglican perch, <laughs> where I would have my knees on the kneeler and my backside on the pew. <laughs> and that's and, fine too. Yeah. And and I love that, that language that you used, um, as you are able, because, um, you know, think about creating accessibility in in our churches for all persons, regardless of ability or disability, and um, especially like physical disability in this case. Um, you know, for me, like I've had four knee operations, and so I can't. I, at various points, I, I couldn't kneel, um, even though that was my preference. And so, for a priest to verbally signal. Yeah, you can stand. That's that's appropriate. Made me feel a lot more comfortable um, yep. knowing that my my praise and worship was just as worthy as the next person to me who was kneeling or who was able to. Absolutely. And so after the prayers in, in the prayer book, when it goes to the confession, again, there's no specific direction given because, again, the assumption would be if you stood up at the creed, you stayed standing during the prayers and you could stay standing during the confession. But again, that's where a lot, a lot of people would have been kneeling for the prayers. They remain kneeling for the confession. Then we stand for the peace. And then when we go to communion, we start out standing. And then actually the one place where the rubric specifically says you can stand or kneel is after um, what's called uh, the, the Sanctus and the Benedictus, the Holy, holy, holy Lord. And that's where people will stand or kneel again because we are petitioning God. We are petitioning God to bless uh, the gifts of bread and wine and make them the body and blood of Christ. And so uh, that continues. And, you know, there's really no, again, there's no specific instruction from that point on. Um, but I think the, you know, at the post communion prayer, I think the assumption is going to be you either stand or kneel. So, so that's so again, there's there's the the folks who put the prayer book together wanted people to feel like there was flexibility in what they could do. 
So to, to, to try to sum that up again, stand to praise or affirm, sit to hear, stand or kneel as able to petition. And then the other, and this is very much a custom because there's nothing in the prayer book, is where might people make the sign of the cross? And the custom is I have observed it, and to some extent, as I do it myself, I can kind of see three points where people will make the sign of the cross. Jeremy at any invocation of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, um, and reminders of our death. Right. And when it, when we talk about the resurrection of the, the resurrection of the dead, I, people will make the sign of the cross. And in the prayers, of the people, when we pray for those who've died, people will make the sign of the cross. And then the other place is, and it's a more sacramental moment, is where you are, in effect, prepared to receive the grace that I spoke about earlier. So when the priest makes the sign of the cross and declares absolution, people will cross themselves. And also in the prayer, in, in the Eucharistic prayer itself, when it is, when we, after, in that section last week that I called the epiclesis, the invocation of the Holy Spirit, first we invoke the Holy Spirit over the gifts, and then we invoke the Holy Spirit over ourselves for what's called sanctification, and we make the sign of the cross. That actually reminds me of a great saying that I think is very, that I think speaks a lot to uh, Episcopal theology of salvation, and it's that if you ever get that question, well, when were you saved? Right? As, as if people you're supposed to know the exact date and you know it. Well, um, somewhere it was said, and no one's been able to know exactly who said this first. But I think the way Episcopalians would put it is, "I have been saved. I am being saved. I will be saved." It's it's a lifelong process of growing, and to be to grow more and more to to becoming a member of the body of Christ in the Eucharist. Well, it's it, sometimes there are growing pains. Amen, and thank God for it. <laughs> you know, I always say like every minute I'm being saved because I need that grace all the time. Um, I do have a question for you, Father David, um, and this this might sound a little silly. Um, so as, as a person who is a member of the laity, um, I have had the privilege of going to multiple uh, different types of Episcopal congregations and to receive the Eucharist um, or Holy Communion from uh, multiple different priests and bishops. Um, and as a reminder for our listeners, only priests and bishops can um, consecrate uh the elements for communion, um, they can consecrate, bless, and absolve. Um, so anyways, I have seen some celebrants, whether it's a priest or a bishop, make the sign of the cross um, when talking about sanctification for humankind, so to speak, or us as people. Um, sancti- um, make the cross over the word sanctify in prayer A, and sometimes they'll wait all the way until um, serve you in unity, constancy, and peace. Um, so I'm I'm curious, do you find a specific word where you make the sign of the cross that makes most sense for you, or um, 
something so else? A lot of people, I know a lot of priests, I think it's kind of a traditional Catholic thing of kind of making a sign of the cross over the bread and the wine. You know, my, I tend to prefer to keep my physical actions as simple and and not to do too much. So for instance, I talked a lot about anamnesis last week. At those places where the anamnesis is being invoked, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. We make this offering um, and I'm kind of doing it on on Zoom, but I, I kind of I kind of leave my hands at the side, but in a sort of a open position around the gifts to make it clear, all right, here's Jesus now. That's what I consider the anamnesis. For the epiclesis, I then move my hands so that they are over covering the gifts. Um I kind of feel like to make a sign of the cross is that's Jesus, but at that moment I'm invoking the Holy Spirit. Mm. Right? And I kind of feel like, I I think the focus should be, this is what the Holy Spirit's doing. And yes, Jesus is present, but I, I, it feels a little superfluous to me personally to make a sign of the cross over the, over the brand wine at the same point that I'm invoking the Holy Spirit. I prefer to just kind of leave my hands over the gifts. Mm. And that, now again, there's no, this is, this is not a rubrical thing. There's no, the only. I will say the only place where, where the rubrics do say is that they do say at the words of institution, the priest should lay a hand mm-hmm. on on or at least on the where the bread is and lay a hand on the cup. Mm, yeah. Those are the only rubrical directions that direct what a priest is supposed to do with their hands at the Eucharist. Everything else is is a question of what a priest might want to communicate mm. about what's going on. Um, and I try to have my actions to really communicate those different parts of the prayer, the anamnesis, mm. the epiclesis, and then the sign of the cross, which I will do is basically the word sanctification mm-hmm. or sanctify, about, yeah. that we might be continue to be sanctified to become more and more holy by this sacrament. Yeah. I, I personally agree with you, you know, sanctify us also that we may faithfully, receive this holy sacrament that's where i uh cross yeah. myself um in hopes that i have that that change of heart that that experience of grace that we talked about earlier um and to me making the sign of the cross is a you know outward sign of my remembrance and participation in that um Absolutely. that i that i have to prepare myself my heart before receiving which I think is a really neat um, thing about our our tradition in particular is that even though we believe that grace has gone before us and goes after us, there is still something on our part that is required of us. We have to be participants um, in in that relationship of grace as well. You know, just as a small in right one, we uh, the the old word is that we might partake, which the 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 closest modern would be participate. We are absolutely the the lay people are as much participants in this as the priests. Now, uh, on another, getting off the, the, I don't want to go too much down this rabbit hole, but that is why, at least as I understand the rubrics of the prayer book, um, there should always be at least one lay person present when there is a Eucharist, because it's it's not just the mystery of what's happening at the altar. It is the sharing 
of the body and blood of Christ and the feeding of God's people. Amen. Amen. I think um, that might be all of our questions for today. So friends, if you have more questions about the sacraments or the Holy Eucharist, um, you know where to find us. You can find us on Instagram at Westmo um, Campus Ministry. You can also email Father David or myself. Um, our emails are found on our, our church websites. And um, and I'll also say uh, I'm I, I I guess I'm you know my 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 son once a long time ago referred to Facebook as the uh, millennial party your parents crashed um, <laughs> and i'm i'm pretty active on on facebook and uh in fact i think if you were I, way back when a lot of people don't remember at one point facebook actually allowed you to kind of you know you create a url with your own name mm-hmm. i did that so actually if you go you could do facebook.com slash david p kendrick and boom i'm there oh cool so Cool. Well, I just learned something new about you, Father David. (laughs) Well, as always, friends, um, we welcome your questions, your curiosities, and um, even your doubts, because doubts are always welcome in in the church, um, because it's a sign that we're growing and that we're wondering about um, our Creator and um, the world around us. So, um, without further ado... We are going to sign off um, for this episode and we will uh, chat with y'all later. And we look forward to all your questions that will come through. Peace out. (laughs) Peace out. (laughs) Hey friends, thanks for listening. Please like and subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. To learn more about all things Episcopal, visit West mo.org backslash all things episcopal all things episcopal podcast is a production of the diocese of west missouri in association with resonant media the lord be with you all